Life's true face is the skull, Nikos Kanzakis. Welcome to Warfare Advancement Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I am your host. So this is take three <laughs> of this episode, kind of. Uh, I had a technical issue with the file earlier tonight. It got corrupted, so I'm trying to re-record this on Christmas Day Eve, or actually the day after Christmas as the case is now. Um, our next episode may also be delayed uh, due to myself being tra uh, traveling for New Year's and celebrations and recovering from those celebrations, but uh, it should only be delayed by a day or so at most. Uh, for now, though, I'm going to go ahead and get started. Uh, now, last week, I went into the defining the geographic region and going into names for the site. Of Jericho and uh, discussing some of the peoples that are associated with it. And we got to the start of the pre-pottery Neolithic B period. And um, I should have emphasized this a little more when I mentioned the three ages system of stone, uh, bronze, and iron uh, in Europe. But in this region, some sites uh, reach PPNA, PPNB, and in some cases, PP and C at different periods, and in some cases, they didn't reach any of them or kind of reached them at different times. Uh, and I know when I talked about the Three Ages system and how it wasn't applicable to the entirety of the world, the PP and E is similar in that even in some places in this region uh, where it was defined and classified, uh, it may not be 100% accurate. So, uh, just keep that in mind when you're listening. Um, some sites don't follow this pattern, and I'll try to point that out when I get to those locations, but um, I may not be 100% accurate, so just try to keep all this in mind. Now, I did have some feedback from the last episode asking about how uh, dating works. Um, Essentially, what happens is they, of course, discover the top, they're the higher layers first, and then as time goes on and they continue to excavate, they get to earlier periods. Um, this is known as stratification. It was kind of pioneered by Kathleen Kenyon, who is one of the primary excavators of Jericho, but she did other sites as well. So, what would happen is they would find artifacts at one layer and then try to date them based on a number of factors. Uh, so there's always going to be a little bit of give and take, you know, in these locations. Could be a hundred years, could be a little bit more, could be a little bit less. It's hard to say. Um, now with the advent of radiocarbon dating, um, after the fact, this is kind of helps narrow things down, but it's not always clear. But uh, just kind of keep all this in mind. For now, though, we're going to continue with Neolithic Jericho, and we're going to go forward uh, where we left off from the last time. So, after a period of abandonment, or semi-abandonment, for what are currently unknown reasons, people began to return to uh, the location. Now they're still in a re in kind of a reorientation period, 
between a hunter-gathering lifestyle and agricultural and pastoral lifestyles as well. Uh, they are uh, using more domesticated stocks, both for crops and animals. Uh, I think that around 90% of the animal bones found in the PPNA level of the site are um, wild antelope. And around 10% of the bones are believed to be domesticated stock. Now, it's hard to tell that these animals are domesticated. Uh, domesticated animal bones are not all that indistinguishable from wild sources, but uh, that's kind of based on uh, our evidence of domestication in other areas. So uh, keep that in mind. During the P, P, and B period, or the pre pottery Neolithic B, uh, the wild antelope make up about 50%, and there are more uh, uh, domesticated stocks. Now, it's not the majority again, it's, but it, it's making up around 50% of meat sources and grain and grass sources. But there are still uh, more major differences between the PPNA and the PPNB. Uh, firstly, there are more, m many more artifacts from this time period, which covers around 7300 to 5800 BC. BCE. Uh, this along with the, the dispersal of said artifacts um, and remains of buildings and the like shows that the settlement had a larger population than the Neolithic A period. Uh, though, again, the exact number is debated. Most estimates I saw suggested that at its height it was home to around 2,000 full-time re residents. Uh, of course, again, that number probably fluctuated seasonally to some extent or another. Um, they did rebuild the walls uh, without the tower, uh, but unfortunately I wasn't able to find the dimensions of the wall at this time. I don't believe they were quite as big as the walls had been during the pre-pottery Neolithic stage, but all sources that mention them do say that they were still uh, substantial stone structures. Uh, another factor is that the houses are still made of uh, sun-dried straw and mud bricks, but they did see a change in design. I think I may have misspoke last week. Um, I said that they were, I, th I think I said they were correct shape at the time, but I'm not so sure now. Um, but essentially in the Neolithic A time that they were um, circular or round buildings, but now they're uh, rectangular or square, and some even had multiple stories. Uh, the houses were no longer spread around in a as random a manner, uh, but saw them instead be built near or right up to uh, others to create almost courtyard or actual yards in the rear of these buildings. Now, um, they would also have, uh, they would mostly be singular rooms, though there were small kind of storage areas. Uh, unfortunately, they've not found any of these buildings completely intact. Uh, many of them have partially collapsed, so it's hard to 100% 
confirm that. Also, there appears to have been kind of ritual sites or what is believed to be a ritual site because they had um, alcoves kind of dug into the um, walls or kind of indented into the walls, uh, kind of like a place that may have been shrines or something like that. But um, these are not any larger than any of the homes that you would see. Now, we also don't know how these locations were parceled out, but it has been suggested, and I agree with this suggestion, that they were likely kept in and shared by extended family groups. Another major change that we see is a ritual or possibly religious change in dealing with the dead. I know I mentioned that the um, that uh, a lot of family members were buried underneath homes. Uh, this is probably still going on. In fact, it is going on. But they also have uh, they unearthed um, skulls that had been plastered over uh, with uh, uh, seashells and alabaster kind of eyes over the slits and it's very possible these were painted or decorated to kind of give them life again. Um, the first of these was found in excavations of Jericho in the 30s. Um, more were found during Kathleen Kenyon's more extensive study of the site in the 50s and indeed more were found in other places in the Levant later. Uh, some by her, some by others. Uh, these have been found all the way uh, from Jericho and to the north in places like uh, sites in uh, Jordan and even up into Syria. Uh, and these are all generally dated to within the same 2,000 year period or so, give or take. Again, we're not 100% narrowed down. Um, some of these sites are older than others, but there is a certain level of um, continuation. Now, we also have um, a number of artifacts that are made up of uh, different sources. There are grinding stones, there are obsidian, there are green uh, stones like malachite and things like that. Uh, some of these cannot even be reliably sourced. We're not sure exactly where they came from. We don't know, but we know that it's not local to the area, so there is again, a level of trade between uh, different sites. There are also additional tools that have been found that were not available during the PPNA period. Uh, they have developed their own kind of hand size for harvesting uh, wild and probably at this point domesticated or semi-domesticated sources of wheats and grasses. Uh, there are what appear to be uh, specialized chisels for carving into stone for decorative or religious purposes. Uh, there are also evidence of rudimentary kind of looms or weights for looms. So there's evidence as well of um, weaving uh, either of wild flax or perhaps wool from sheep and uh, goats. Um, 
basically it's evidence of a kind of a advanced well a an economy that is not based solely on survival there is a uh, much more uh, rich or wealthy I guess you would call it society or at least less um, a society less focused on mere survival um, and as you could probably tell from the decorated skulls there are are also um, humanoid figures carved from stone actual uh, meant to be representations of humans or gods that look like humans um, so there there's definitely an advancement in terms of culture uh, now that is you know somewhat of guesswork uh, but we you know, it is, uh, at least with the skulls and possibly with these figures, that these are representations of ancestors. And ancestor worship, uh, you know, is one of the more popular theories and one that I tend to agree with, um, that this is an emerging uh, factor uh, with some of these sites. Um, now, ancestor worship is going to be very prevalent in... Uh, the Far East and China specifically, as well as other Asian uh, cultures as well. But it is interesting that this is kind of a factor that you're seeing more overt uh, representations of. And this kind of ties back into some more feedback I got from the last episode uh, that even recently in American history, uh, and I'm sure in other places as well, is that, um, you know, people burying their ancestors close by or their close family members close by, um, for instance, on farms uh, or just in, you know, houses on land people owned, uh, you know, plots of, uh, or not plots, but uh, burying uh, family on land you own is is fairly normal. Um, now, obviously, there's you know a little bit of a difference between burying your your family in land you own or you live nearby uh, from burying them under your floorboards. But you know, take of that what you will, or make of that what you will, I should say. But this kind of sets up a change that's going to happen in the next couple of thousand years uh, people are going to separate their dead from their living uh, independent uh, cemeteries or burial grounds or areas specifically dedicated to those type of uh, places are going to become more common uh, so we, again we see uh, we're seeing a development in terms of how we view the living and the dead, and their relation to each other. Uh, now, I'm not uh, going to get into that too much tonight, mainly because uh, this is the second time I've recorded this episode, but also uh, I'm going to try and tie in some supposed uh, developments in uh, other places in the Levant and the southern Anatolian Peninsula this is kind of going to be a big factor in terms of religious development here in the next couple of episodes. Um, and 
I'm going to try to break this down further into what it could mean at that point in time. Uh, now, I should point out that there are those that think this might not be ancestor worship. Uh, there are those that think that this could be evidence of uh, kind of trophy uh, taking or something like that. Uh, I, I don't think that's the case because while most of the skulls that have been found are male and grown males at that, there are some female and children child skulls as well. They're not nearly as common, but I think that is something that is, uh, or uh, should be something that should be taken into account uh, when we kind of look at this as a whole. So uh, yes, I, I don't think that they're taking children and women's skulls as trophies. That's not something that really screams prestigious, at least in my mind. Uh, of course, that could be wrong. It could be a case that this was just an extremely warlike society that has developed, but uh, again, I, I don't think that is the case. Uh, but again, I'm going to dive into this more when we get to uh, the next couple of episodes, uh, when we talk about uh, other peoples in and around the Levant and uh, southern Anatolia. So, we see this development kind of continue almost uninterrupted until about 6,000 BC or so. Uh, at this point, you begin to see the population or the estimated population for Jer Jericho begin to decline. Um, certainly by uh, 5,800 BC or BCE, uh, the site is almost completely abandoned with the exception of it maybe still serving as a kind of hunting ground or perhaps a place to get water from the nearby spring or Jordan River, whatever the case may be. Now the reason for the abandonment of this site at this time is also fairly unknown, much like the PPNA period. Um, I know I didn't go into this in too much detail uh, because, again, it's a lot of speculation. Uh, but I know Kathleen Kenyon thought that uh, the PPNA site was wiped out by a group in warfare uh, and, you know, it was reoccupied later by people that, you know, led to that wipeout of that culture or that, that time frame of culture. Uh, now, that is partly due to her own kind of experiences going on during World War II. So, you know, a lot of people's, uh, I guess, explanation of things mirrors their own life experience. Uh, there are those that certainly disagree with her, and there is plenty of evidence that suggests that it could have just been environmental um, at that time. And I know that there are those that consider... The same um, thing happened uh, to the PPNB culture as the PPNA culture, uh, that it was probably, or it could have been uh, um, environmental as opposed to some type of invasion. Uh, but just keep in mind that that is something that, you know, it, it could have been different things, it could have been the same thing, and environmental factors are very heavy. In fact, 
at the kind of end of our period in the Levant, the 6000 BC mark, uh, there is evidence that there is much less rainfall in the region and that could have led to a decline in uh, not only wild sources but domesticated or semi-domesticated sources of grasses and grains and that that kind of led to population pressures that led to these groups um, leaving Jericho and spreading out and colonizing or living a more uh, traditional lifestyle. Uh, there is also a group that suggests that perhaps there was some type of flood in the area that could have been a source for a number of flood myths that are very prevalent in the region. Uh, you know, so keep all of this in mind. But it does show that, or it does uh, kind of uh, presage a factor that's going to become very common in the region, and that is that a lot of sedentary sites will be abandoned and new sedentary sites will be set up. Uh, this is going to be kind of a common occurrence in this area specifically and other places later um, that kind of repeats itself. It's a pattern uh, of these early sedentary societies that they are somewhat fragile for whatever reason. So as we continue and kind of study uh, the conflicts between sedentary and non-sedentary peoples, uh, that kind of pattern of conflict between them, you're also going to see a pattern of sedentary uh, cultures disappearing and re-emerging or you know, something along those lines kind of come up in this region and others just more and more uh, as we go forward in our timeline. But I think for right now, I think this is a good place to call it for Jericho. Uh, again, next week we'll kind of continue in the region, talk about some other sites that are nearby and how they are similar, how they are different to Jericho. Uh, and that will kind of be our next couple of episodes. I'm going to do something on Cyprus as well. And then we'll continue uh, further east uh, into the rest of Asia and talk about how uh, these other locations are advancing and making a living uh, in their uh, geographic ranges. But uh, I apologize if this episode's a little rough. Uh, this episode's not quite as long as I initially recorded it. It's, it's close to it. Probably not quite as focused, probably not quite as well thought out. And again, I do apologize for the tardiness of this upload. Uh, technical issues were a very big bummer. Uh, I attempted to recover the corrupted file, but uh, unfortunately that was not possible. So I do thank you for your patience and your, your kind of perseverance on this. And I hope you'll continue to listen and enjoy. Uh, I'm almost at 200 downloads this month. I think uh, just a couple of more and we'll beat it. Uh, and that will put us in good position to beat a thousand downloads uh, at the end of January for, um, for the podcast. And I, I do want to thank everyone for this. Uh, I hope everyone has had a safe and productive 
uh, Christmas if you celebrate, and if you don't, well, I hope you had at least a safe and productive weekend. Um, please feel free to give me any feedback at all at uh, waradrevpod at gmail.com. Of course, you can also reach me at our Twitter feed where I have uh, my DMs opened. Um, but yeah, thank you all for listening. I hope you have a good rest of your day and uh, have a good week ahead. Thank you and goodbye. See you next time.